You are now listening to The Model Health Show with Sean Stevenson. For more, visit themodelhealthshow.com. Welcome to The Model Health Show. This is fitness and nutrition expert, Sean Stevenson, and I'm so grateful for you tuning in with me today. Listen, lately I've been thinking a lot about the very nature of consciousness. You know, this is something that I've been pondering here and there for many years, but as of late, I've really been thinking a lot about it, especially, you know, when you have that quiet time to think. I know that a lot of times we don't have that kind of time these days, but you know, when I'm driving, things like that, sometimes I'm not playing music, I'm not listening to a podcast, just pondering different things. And, you know, if our health and wellness is really a result or an outpicturing of our consciousness, what is more important than learning about that? And where is our consciousness actually located? That's something I was really thinking a lot about. And then I get a call from my publicist and she tells me about this new book and this new author. And I was like, okay, it sounds interesting. I've been thinking a lot about consciousness and the book is uh, largely based on our perception of, of consciousness and kind of how this whole phenomenon works to the great degree that we can figure out. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting that I'm getting this message right now. And so I, I looked into it a little bit and I asked because I knew that I was gonna be on the road and I was coming to San Francisco for the Take Control Tour, which we're here, we're getting a, doing a couple of shows. And I had a space open and I asked, okay, so where does the author live though? And guess where? San Francisco, just so happened. And so, yeah, I got a little freaked out. I was like, this is a little weird. What does this mean? But how often do those things happen in your life? You know, when you think about somebody and then they send you a message or they shoot you a text, like before, like you have the thought about them and then they hit you up, right? And so many different strange things, phenomena, happy accidents take place in our lives that we kind of brush under the carpet. And so this is something I've been really interested in for many years, but I'm an analytical human being. Like I wanna know the science, I wanna know how this stuff works, but here's the, the truth. And this is something I think we all need to wrap our minds and our hearts around is that we know very little. You know, right now, um, even the universe itself is uh, about 96% empty space. It's what we call dark matter. You know, there's so little and we don't know about it. We don't know what it is, what it means. And we're trying to figure it out, even in the realm of nutrition, we know fractions of a percent about nutrition right now. And we can package it up and make it make sense. And the stuff that we do know, we can apply, obviously, to good fortune or to protect us from things going tragically wrong. But at the end of the day, we're still trying to figure this stuff out. And the Model Health Show is really providing a model for all of us and, and other people's models, other experts on what they're doing and frameworks that they're providing to really help take our lives to another level. You know, So I'm really excited about this episode. I'm excited about this conversation to delve in and figure out you know, what's up with consciousness, you know? And, um, but before we do that, listen, again, being on the road, uh, traveling so much, you know, there's expenses involved, obviously. And so one of the ways that we look to save some money is buying our food. I know this sounds crazy. Now, listen, hear me out. For many years, I was, you know, we go into the, you know, to the local mom and pop nutrition stores, Whole Foods, they're great. I think Whole Foods is, is great, but the nickname is Whole Paycheck, all right, for a reason. And the parking lot, though. I mean, I went to a parking lot here in San Francisco. They had a guy. They had like a, a parking lot director guy. Like he's doing the whole, you know, 
he's like doing the uh, the marine fingers and you know trying to get people parked because that parking lot could be crazy. But at the end of the day, this is a big barrier for us. You know, one of the reasons that we use for not investing in our health is that it it costs too much. You know, so when folks are interested in eating healthier food because of not having government subsidies, because of not having um, access, we tend to put a premium because it does in many cases cost more for companies to do the right thing, which is unfortunate. But we can't really fight the system unless we're doing something about it and voting with our dollar. And so we want to invest in these companies that are doing the right thing. And what you'll see is these bigger brands are going to start to do more of the right things, which we're already seeing. And so with that said, how do we invest in our health without breaking our own bank? For me and what my family does is we buy a lot of our food from Thrive Market. And we do that because we're saving 25 to 50% off the retail price that you'd pay at a place like Whole Foods, which is great. You're going to save that money and be able to put that back in your pocket to invest that money how you want. Maybe it's personal development. Maybe it's, maybe it's shoes. You know, maybe you got a, maybe you got a fetish for Jordans, you know, or Gucci, whatever it is for you, you know, but for you, you get to keep that money and invest it how you want versus the, the, the other option, which is, you know, haphazardly spending money, cashing out, making it rain at, at Whole Foods. All right. So with that said, uh, 25 to 50% off, and they've got everything curated for you already. The very best companies. If you're interested in gluten-free, they have all the categories of best gluten-free products, paleo, vegan, uh, non-GMO, whatever it is that suits your fancy. Isn't that something just really nice to say, suits your fancy? I'll probably never say it again, but that's for, for all of us to have a company that's looking out for us already, curating the best companies that are doing things right, speaks volumes, all right? So head over, check them out, but here's the, the rub, all right? You get bonus alert, your first purchase by going to thrivemarket.com forward slash model health, together is one word, model health. You get an additional 25% off your first purchase, all right? And you get free shipping. And you get a free 30-day membership to Thrive Market, which you're going to love and keep that membership because it's just going to keep saving you money. All right, so head over, check them out, thrivemarket.com forward slash model health. And now let's get to the Apple Podcast Review of the Week. Another five-star review titled Nutritious Food for Thought by 110 Man. As a breast cancer survivor, I know how important lifestyle choices are to creating good health. I stumbled upon your podcast a few months ago and your authentic personal connection to the content you present really touched me. You and your guest have inspired me to take better care of myself and more importantly, given me the resources to accomplish this. My results go way beyond the measuring tape and scale. I feel more centered, peaceful, and confident about how to move forward in a positive direction for my body, mind, and soul. Thank you, Sean, for the precious gifts you've given me. Awesome. Thank you so much for that review. It means everything. That is so powerful. And thank you so much for making me a part of your life. And everybody, if you've yet to do so, pop over to Apple Podcasts, leave a review. All right, leave a review for the show. If it's bringing value to your life, please head over and do that. All right, let other people know that you love and appreciate the show. They mean a lot. Or if you, whatever app you might be using, or if you're watching this on YouTube, if you're here in the studio with us, just leave a comment, all right? Let everybody know what's up, all right? I appreciate you so very much. And on that note, let's get to our special guest and our topic of the day. 
Mark Gober is an author whose worldview was turned upside down in late 2016 when he was exposed to world-changing science. The science suggested that contrary to mainstream assumptions, consciousness is not produced by the brain. After researching extensively, he wrote An End to Upside Down Thinking to introduce the general public to these cutting edge ideas, all in an effort to encourage a much needed global shift in scientific and existential thinking. Now, this is a big reason that I decided to dive into the book and to have this conversation is it, first of all, the research was phenomenal, but also people who I highly respect, like Dr. Larry Dossey and uh, Dr. Dean Radin, people who I've been following and researching their work for many years, endorsed this book. And so Mark's book has been endorsed by well-known thinkers such as two-time Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Irvin Laszlo, Harvard neurosurgeon and number one New York Times bestselling author, Eben Alexander, MD, Pixar founder, Lauren Carpenter, New York Times bestselling author, Larry Dossey, and chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Dr. Dean Radin, and many, many others. And again, really, really interesting. I kind of leaned into the discomfort on this and learning about it, but I'm fascinated and grateful to have you on the show today. Welcome, Mark. How are you doing? Thanks for having me, Sean. Let's dive in. Let's talk about your superhero origin story. All right, because this is kind of a big pivot in what your life would kind of uh, look like and what it was directed towards to you getting to writing a book like this. So how did this all happen? If we had spoken two years ago, I wouldn't have known about many of the topics at all that I wrote about in my book. So I can start from the beginning, and I think this might be helpful to some of your listeners who have either possibly a similar background to me. Mm-hmm. So I graduated from Princeton, where I studied psychology. But originally, I was studying economics, thought it was based too much on the assumption that people are rational agents. Yeah. So I said, OK, something's up there. We're not fully rational. Um, so I was looking at other potential majors thought about astrophysics because it was a great astrophysics department and I always had big questions about how the universe worked. Uh, I even met with the department head about potentially switching into that department. I ultimately decided against it because I was on the tennis team at Princeton, a division one program. Mm -hmm. I was eventually the captain of the team and I realized I couldn't do it. So I studied psychology and I focused on behavioral economics and judgment decision making. So wrote my thesis on Daniel Kahneman's prospect theory. He's the author of Thinking Fast and Slow yeah. on human, you know, how we make, uh, how biases impact our everyday decisions yeah. in health and otherwise. Um, pivoted from there into investment banking. So wasn't really using my psychology background <laughs> ostensibly. Right. Um, starting in July of 2008. So this is right before the crisis hit. Ooh, wow. I was at UBS, so one of the big investment banks. Yeah. Um, it was having problems on its own. Mm. And I was working around the clock. Um, I was in the group that covered financial institutions. So my clients were the big insurance companies and banks. We were helping them with mergers and acquisitions and raising capital. I wasn't sleeping much at all. So any of the interests I had in college about existence, you know, I didn't have time to do that at all. Mm eventually left in 2010 to join my current firm called Sherpa Technology Group. We do mergers and acquisitions advisory and strategic advisory for technology companies and innovative companies. That's what I do now. I'm based in Silicon Valley. That's my day job. Mm-hmm. So now to the book because they're, you know, we're talking we're not talking about consciousness yet. <laughs> um, it was 2 years ago when I first became exposed to these topics and I'll say that before I got into these topics I was very nihilistic in terms of my life outlook. I thought life had no meaning at all. 
because if I can now explain why, I probably couldn't have explained it as well back then. But if you think that consciousness is produced by the brain, when I say consciousness, I mean my awareness. Right. I'm, I'm sitting here talking to you, Sean. The I that is sitting here, that subjective inner experience, that's my consciousness. So if that's produced by my brain, what happens when my brain and my body shut off, once it's dead, then the consciousness itself should also go away. So I took that very literally. Okay, that means my memories, everything is gone once I'm dead. So what is there meaning in life? I guess I could come up with meaning, but it's almost a rationalization. And I would kind of go back and forth in my mind about this. And I ultimately concluded that life didn't have meaning. So you probably didn't know this if you were talking to me. I, I was still a happy guy, but I think I had big questions about existence and I had a bleak outlook on life. Yeah. I wasn't looking for these topics at all. And I heard some podcasts. Initially, it was a podcast on a, on a health radio show. And it was a woman who talked about being able to communicate with other realms, very out there stuff that I had never heard of before. Um, did sound like she was trying to trick people. So I was a little confused. Like, I didn't think she sounded delusional. Mm -hmm. I'd studied in psychology in college, I, I knew what delusional people were like. She didn't sound like that. Mm -hmm. um, so I was interested enough to explore it a bit further. And at the end of the podcast, there was a discussion about her own podcast, The this, this Psychic Woman. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, I'll listen to her podcast where she talks to other people who do these similar kinds of things. I would just put it on the car, driving from San Francisco um, down to San Mateo, where our office is based. And I would just listen to the episodes, not thinking too much of it at first. And then it got to a point a few weeks in where I heard enough people describing a similar picture of reality that was totally counter to what I had thought was true that I realized something was up because either these people were all colluding or there's some mass conspiracy, but I couldn't reason that was the case. And all the things they were talking about, they, they just didn't conform to what I had been taught. So what are some of the things they were talking about? They were talking about psychic abilities, so the ability to telepathically communicate or know the future before it happens. They talked about the idea that consciousness doesn't come from the brain at all, and that when we, our body dies, consciousness doesn't die. And even further, people were talking about the idea that consciousness actually precedes physical matter, yeah. that the physical world is a product of consciousness. This totally rocked my world. When I heard enough people say this, and this is another important part of it, I decided to explore myself. So I said, okay, if these people can do things, let me try it out. So I just I researched the best people mm -hmm. that I could find, and they were able to do things that I couldn't explain. So the research was lining up with, with what I was seeing in my own experience, it lined up with quantum physics, it lined up with a lot of questions that were out there, and I realized that I had to rethink my whole life. Mm -hmm. So this was around Thanksgiving 2016. I went into the woods, in your woods here. I, I basically drove back and forth for three days straight, didn't go home to see my family, and because I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know who to talk to about these things. I didn't know how to think about my life. Um, so it was very disorienting and jarring experience. And I was, I decided to research it further because I'm like, okay, I have to rethink all of reality. And as I was doing that, I was telling different friends about it. People who were sort of like me come from a either athletic or business finance background. Mm -hmm. And they were saying, well, I've never heard of this research you're talking about. And we'll probably get into this, but this is research from the U S government from Princeton, which I didn't even know was going on when right. I was there. Yeah. Um, some high caliber people were doing this research and friends were telling me that it was starting to have an impact on how they looked at life. Just being exposed to the questions yeah. was enough for them to start thinking about things. So this was a year into my research. Last July, July 2017, I was like, okay, 
something's going on. I'm really interested in the stuff. It's getting through to people. Why don't I try to write something? And prior to this, I had no intention of writing a book or of being public in any way. So 4th of July weekend, it was a four day weekend last year. I channeled my inner investment banker and said, I'm not leaving my apartment. I'd wake up at 7 a.m. and write until 1 a.m. Books everywhere, did it four days in a row. And I came Mm. out of that weekend with more than half the book done and then finished it over the next few weekends. So I come out of July 2017 with the draft of this book and I knew it was gonna have an impact on people so I really wanted to get it out there and I was ready to just like publish it. Um, But I got two scientists to look at it and they said, look, you should really get this to a mainstream audience because it's written for a general, Mm. a, a mainstream person. And I've said, well, how do you do that? And then everyone said, well, you need to get a literary agent. So this is a few weeks after I wrote the book, uh, two different people talking about synchronicities uh, mentioned Bill Gladstone, who I had never heard of, but Bill, he represented the original um, Four Dummies series, DOS for Dummies. Mm. He represents Eckhart Tolle and um, some, some very prominent authors in the space. So I said, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. I sent him a cold email, query letter for Bill Gladstone. I think the subject line was, um, manuscript on the next scientific revolution mm. and i sent him <laughs> I, <laughs> bossy like that <laughs> i sent him sample chapters and a proposal and he got back to me the same day oh. and he said here's an here's an agreement um wow. this idea resonates so all of a sudden i've got an agent who i think can really help and he's very philosophically aligned he's been a huge part of this process so i give him a lot of credit for it so that's the real that's the story behind it um and now the book comes out October 9th. Awesome, man. And I'm super happy for you and going through this process. And by the way, book deals and this doesn't usually happen like this, by the way, which you know this now. But at the time, you're just like, okay, you just get a literary agent. No, a lot of these folks not even trying to talk to you, you know, but that just speaks to the that speaks volumes about the, the quality and content of what you wrote. Because as you mentioned, there's research from Princeton. This is there's research research from the U.S. government that it's just like when you start to look at this data, it just it starts to change your paradigm. And I can see why you have to learn kind of to live again in the way that you're thinking and your perception. And by the way, uh, really quickly, you mentioned something and, and folks asking those different questions. And that's what it's really about. And that's why I wanted to have you on because I want us to question everything. I want us to have the audacity to ask questions and, and not to just uh, accept assumptions that oftentimes are actually not correct or if anything they have big gaps in them you know yeah totally and that's the way i wrote the book hopefully it's just to expose people to the evidence and people can take that evidence however they want yeah. it's just a matter of knowing that these things exist and then reconciling it with some worldview yeah. what happened to me was after looking at this enough and talking to the scientists which i've done i have my own podcast coming out where i interview people like dean Radin, larry dossie nobel prize winner brian josephson who's into this stuff you hear enough of it and i had to shift my worldview so awesome. I'm hoping this podcast exposes people to new things. So with that said, let's kind of dive in and look at some of the science and just the fundamental premise about what our science is based on is something called materialism. And so let's talk about the big issue just right out of the gate with materialism. Yeah. So materialism is the basic thinking that underlies most of modern thought, especially in the West. And the idea is this that 13.8 billion years ago, there was a big bang and it filled the universe with matter. And when I say matter, I mean like atoms, physical stuff. When you have enough physical stuff in a big universe, you're bound to get interactions between those atoms. We call that chemistry. When you have enough random chemical interactions, you're bound to end up with a self-replicating molecule. After enough random 
you know, you're bound, you're bound to get that, like DNA. And DNA, as we know, is, is very critical to um, the evolution of human beings, and human beings evolved to have brains, and from the brain, consciousness pops out. <laughs> so materialism says we start with matter, we end up with consciousness. This is the big kicker that I didn't know was a kicker at the time. We have no idea how that chain of events happens, especially the step of the brain creating consciousness. We don't know how that could happen. Science Magazine had, has called this question the number two question remaining in all of science. The way they put it is, what is the biological basis of consciousness? So what does that mean in layman's terms? If I ask listeners right now to touch your arm, easy to do. Yeah. You can touch your leg, easy. Touch your head. Mm-hmm. Now touch your mind. Where is it, right? So this this is framing the question. How is it that a physical body that you can touch, you just proved it, how does it produce this non-physical consciousness or mind or awareness that we can't touch? That's the big question. We don't know what the biological basis for consciousness is. So that's what my book explores. Number one, and I think perhaps most importantly, exposes to people that this is a question and a huge question that affects our existence. I mean, think about how many advances we have in science, sending people to the moon, genetically modifying biological organisms, building smartphones, but we still don't know how a brain could produce our mind. In other words, we don't know where our own mind comes from. So this is the big question that I look at. What I argue in my book... Oh, before you do that, um, I think a good exercise too, because I think a big thing is because our eyes are centered in our heads, right? And we're taking in this data through our eyes and also you know, our ears and these other strong senses, we tend to think that we live up here. But what would happen if we move our eyes down? Right, that's a great point. We might have a different perspective on where our, our perceptions are coming from. What if our eyes were at our, at our knees and our ears? And I talk right. about this a bit in chapter two of my book. That's part of the reason we're anchored to thinking that the brain produces consciousness. There's another reason, which is that we know there are strong correlations between brain activity and the nature of conscious experience. So let's say someone gets into a car accident and that person hurts the part of her brain responsible for vision and she has vision problems afterwards. We can say, oh, well obviously the brain is causing her conscious experience because we affect the brain and her conscious experience is affected proportionally. The problem with that reasoning is we can't know just because two things are related that one causes the other. In statistics, we, it said correlation does not imply causation. It's equally possible that there's an, another explanation. Um, so if we think about, before we get to the explanation, the, the problem with that reasoning, and I talk about this in my book from uh, Dr. Bernardo Castro, imagine you have a large fire. You'll have lots of firefighters that show up, and you have an even larger fire and more firefighters show up strong correlation between the number of firefighters and the size of the fire. Do we conclude that the firefighters caused the fire just because they're both occurring at the same time? Right. So that just shows the potential error. I'm not saying it proves anything, but mm -hmm. we just have to be mindful. Right. We know there's a correlation between the brain and consciousness. Does the brain produce it? Um, so that's, you know, there are reasons that we think that the brain could produce consciousness, but the problem is we have no idea how it could ever happen. Right, exactly. And so this leads us to another perspective on it. And this is that it's actually inverted. And it's not that matters creating consciousness, it's actually the opposite. Can you talk about that? Sure. So this is the upside down thinking that I'm referring to in the, in the title of the book, mm -hmm. which is that, okay, well, we don't know where consciousness comes from. 
We've established that. I don't think even that's even a controversial statement. It's one of the big questions in science. What if consciousness doesn't come from the brain at all? What if it doesn't come from physical matter at all? What if consciousness almost precedes the physical universe and biological organisms? What if matter is created by consciousness itself and the body is basically a vehicle for experiencing consciousness? And this is the alternative explanation for thinking about the correlation between the brain and consciousness um, is the brain, let's say the brain's like a filtering mechanism or an antenna receiver. We would see the same issues in someone that harms his or her brain. They would have a disrupted conscious experience because the vehicle of experience has been affected. But it doesn't mean that the brain is producing it. So if we use the TV set analogy, which is not a precise analogy, but I think it could help. If you think about damaging an antenna on a TV set, the show that you're watching, all of a sudden it's a really scratchy show. It's, it's muffled. Um, but we don't conclude, just because the show isn't, isn't coming up right, that the TV set is what produced the signal. The signal actually exists outside of the TV set and the antenna is picking it up. So I argue that the brain is more like a filtering mechanism or an antenna type process that is a lens through which we through which consciousness is having an experience. So in terms of identity, this is a reversal of I'm a body that has a consciousness to know I'm a consciousness that's experiencing a physical world through a body. And that's part of the reason I had such a freak out when I learned about this, because it's a reversal of, of our own basic identity. Yeah. So what brought you to the, the belief, which first of all, a lot of things in, in our current uh, paradigm with science, it, they're just not accurate. You know, if we were basing materialism and conscious, this idea of consciousness through materialism on it of a huge unknown, right? And we going, everything is proceeding off of that. We don't know how consciousness comes from matter, but yet all of our sciences are approaching it like that. That's terrible. It's a foundational screw up. And so, but what led you to believe the difference? What led you to, to having the, the strong association that consciousness is actually creating matter? So I would say it comes from a variety of phenomena that point in that direction. So these things are difficult to prove, if not impossible to formally prove. But we can look at evidence and say that it points us in a direction that's more likely to be true than another. And I'm always open to new evidence because I could be swayed in other ways too. But it's really the, the amount of evidence. And so what kind of evidence? First, if we look at physics, so most of our day-to-day -day life is based on Newtonian physics. You drop an apple, falls to the ground, gravity, makes sense. Newtonian physics has been really successful in predicting how things work in the universe. But we know that it's only an approximation. And there are a lot of things that are an approximation. Our vision, for example. We can only see a small percentage of the electromagnetic spectrum, mm -hmm. right? There's a huge infrared light, x-rays. We can't see them, we know they exist. So our perceptions are already limited. Relating that to physics, there's a whole branch of physics called quantum mechanics or quantum physics that really provides a more accurate worldview than the Newtonian approximation. So when you say, okay, well, this is the physics that's been proven since the early 1900s, um, it's well established that this is real and it doesn't conform to our common sense like Newtonian physics does. Mm. Um, that's part of what points us in that direction. And there's, there's a, a phenomenon in physics that addresses consciousness explicitly. The formal term is the collapse of the wave function in the double slit laser experiment. Yeah. The, uh, the, the layman's version of that is 
the act of observing is affecting the physical world around us. Right. So if we think about that, that means consciousness potentially is playing a role in the physical world. So that doesn't prove that consciousness creates matter, and the studies don't necessarily prove that either. But what they teach us is that maybe consciousness is involved. And we already know that right. this Newtonian view of common sense reality isn't working, because I wouldn't think that consciousness or the mind or an observer could affect reality. I, if, my, if I use my common sense, I would think that, well, the table's there, whether or not I'm looking at it. And yeah. what we see in this experiment is that a particle behaves like a wave, which is meaning it's probably a, a percentage uh, possibility that's here, potentially here. And when you observe it, it becomes a particle. It becomes located in one place. That's not common sense, but that's what our physics tells us. So when we're thinking about, okay, what led me to this? I think physics is a place to start. Doesn't prove anything, but I think it's a good framework. Yeah, and this the observer effect is what you're referring mm -hmm. to is well known in science and physics. It's just one of those things that's very, very difficult, if not impossible to try to explain. But we do know that human awareness does affect the world around us. There's an experiment of Vladimir Popenine uh, this phantom DNA experiment. Do you know about this I'm not one? familiar with it. So what he did was he took, they had a vacuum, which when you are, are doing experiments with the vacuum, ba basically we're taking out all of the particulate matter. There should be nothing in the vacuum. And so, except biophotons, you know, these little packets of light that you can't really, you know, get rid of. They're everywhere. It's kind of the stuff that existence is made of. And so what they did was they inserted some human DNA into the vacuum because they were interested to see how would these photons potentially respond to the DNA being there. And what happened was all of these photons that were just randomly scattered throughout the vacuum began to conform itself to the human DNA. And so they were like, wow, this is really interesting. Now here's where it gets really weird. They take the human DNA out and you know, you just assume that these photons are just going to go back to their random organization or lack of organization but that's not what happened they stay conformed as if the human dna was still there the human dna made a somewhat semi-permanent impression upon the stuff that makes up our reality and so when i came across this study and then i did some other research i was just like how do more people not know this that we are actually affecting the very stuff that our reality is made of and we think we're so Isolated, we often think that we're weak, we often think that we're not capable, but it's just not so. And I'm very, that's why I'm excited to talk to you to help to redirect our attention to know that we do affect the world around us and right. we are powerful. And we think about health. How are we affecting our bodies with our mind? How does our mindset affect our health? So nutrition's obviously important, but the baseline mentality underlying the person is critical too. Yeah, absolutely. So big implications there. You know, I would like to talk to you about, there's so much fascinating stuff in your book, but one of the things I want to start off with, because memories, right? We think that our memories, and we know certain parts of the brain are associated with our memories for sure, but these parts of the brain can be damaged or even removed, and yet people, and, and animals, in specific study you shared mm -hmm. in your book, uh, Shuffling Animal Brains, mm -hmm. all right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there's a book called Shuffle Brain. Uh, by a scientist who was a materialist himself and was looking at what would happen if you basically chopped up brains and put them back into elementary animals. Could they still exhibit feeding behavior where they're looking for food? And this scientist, Paul Peach, 
um, was looking to disprove the idea that you could that the animal would still exhibit anything normal um, when you put the brain back in. And what happened was that he found in salamanders that even when you chopped up the brains, put them back in and did all kinds of things, put a tadpole brain inside, at least part of it, um, the, the animals were still able to function, which goes against this materialist idea that there's a, you know, that the brain is producing consciousness. This gets to another idea that I talk about in the book, which is that in a number of cases, we find reduced brain functioning or damaged brains and heightened conscious experience. We don't see that necessarily with the little animals, although it's still remarkable. We wouldn't expect that if the brain produced consciousness, they would be able to do anything. But we have other cases where the brain, like a savants, autistic savants, or anyone who has you know, incredible mathematical abilities, um, Rain Man is a movie that, that talks about a savant named Kim Peek. These are, this is a real phenomenon that we've accepted, and these are people with highly impaired brains and yet extraordinary mathematical abilities or ability to remember uh, encyclopedias and recite them and, and read books. In one case, was um, a savant could read books uh, with two different books with different eyes. I yeah. mean, remarkable things with a damaged brain. So these are all examples of, and there's another case called terminal lucidity. Mm -hmm. And this is reported in individuals who are nearing death, often they have Alzheimer's disease, they've been out of it for most of their life for many years, uh, leading up to their, their soon to be death, and all of a sudden they snap out of it. And there's a little girl I reference in my book, she says it was like talking to Rip Van Winkle, and then she goes, and then she passes away. So what's happening? We have a damaged brain again and some kind of conscious experience. Um, that would conform with the idea that the brain's like a filtering mechanism, and that there's some broader reality we, when we damage the filter, we sort of unlock it. And that's what psychedelics may do as well by reducing brain activity. And that's what some of the studies show. Mm -hmm. People are, have this enriched experience, uh, which again conforms to the idea that maybe the brain is, is actually limiting what we experience and there's a broader reality out there and that damaging the brain in certain ways can somehow unlock it. Mm. Very, very interesting stuff. And, and by the way, so in those animal studies, it's not just the fact that they still had kind of an innate drive to eat, but their routine is what right. was so fascinating. They still, they did things a certain way that that animal was conditioned to do or that it was doing already. Right. And that's just nuts. And this blew <laughs> the scientists away. He said he had to start his intellectual life all over again because it totally, it totally messed up his materialist worldview. I want to talk about time because this is another thing that really fascinates me. But for a lot of us, it's something that we engage with constantly, obviously, like we're existing in this concept of time. And today, more than ever, we got so much stuff going on, you know, so people are like time management, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to time management, but we can't manage time. It's just happening, you know, but we can manage ourselves within this construct of time. And even there's, you know, if we even look at some of this uh, quantum phenomena, first, actually, let's take a step back. Okay. Let's talk about Einstein and him calling... Uh, spooky, is a spooky action at a distance? Yes. Is that what he called yeah. it? Let's talk about that. Okay. So this is another phenomenon that we accept as being real. This is accepted in the physics community, but it makes no sense according to our everyday perceptions. Um, so entanglement is the idea that two physical particles that are physically distant from one another, they mirror each other instantaneously. So basically, if you affect one particle, you instantaneously affect the other one, meaning that there's no time gap. The reason Einstein called this spooky is that he thought the speed of light was the fastest anything could travel. And that's really, really fast, but it's not instantaneous. 
what this implies, and physicists are struggling to figure out what it actually means, one could construe this as an invisible connection, meaning that there's some kind of interconnectedness at a physics, at the level of physics that's been proven um, that is going on that we don't see. So Einstein disliked this so much that he tried to disprove it. And he ended up actually proving its reality when he went back and did studies. And so entanglement is something that is shown to be real. As this relates to consciousness potentially, and I'm sure we'll get here, is the notion that there is an interconnectedness potentially at the level of consciousness, that we are actually interconnected in ways that we can't see with our eyes. Yeah, that's just weird. But also, again, super fascinating stuff. And to see the research and when somebody's smart, we call them an Einstein, right? And for him to have trouble with this, you know, just like this was outside of the realm of, you know, being a, a physicist. And what's so really cool about your book is you have some of the top physicists in the world who, you know, you're gathering their data and also they're talking about this stuff and, you know, just really investigating, having the audacity to question the nature of our reality. And so I want to talk again, I want to talk about time. And the reason I want to talk about this is that this is where I started to feel that discomfort, right? But then again, it's just like, I've had instances in my life where this has happened, but I've never talked about it, you know? Yeah. And with that said, so let's talk about this concept of precognition. And specifically, you've got studies, well done studies on people being able to sense. Let's talk about the skin first. Mm -hmm. And you talked about that specifically. Yeah, so these are studies where um, the, a typical psychological experiment is reversed in time. And what I mean by that is we know from psychology, and I remember this from studying psychology, if you present some, someone with a picture, let's say it's an erotic image or something violent that we know will arouse the body, the body reacts. So the skin, there's, it's called a, the galvanic skin response. You'll get a response there. The pupils could dilate. You might get a response in your brain. The heart might react. We know that happens after. So the picture is shown, and then we measure it. What, what's done in these studies is the body is measured before the picture is shown, before it's shown. And no one knows what picture will be shown mm -hmm. because it's randomly generated by a computer. So the experimenter running the test doesn't know if it's going to be like a peaceful landscape, a mountain or a lake, something that wouldn't create uh, some kind of bodily reaction, or if it will be some arousing picture. And what's found in these studies using statistics, and this is where there's lots of controversy, is that the body seems to respond seconds before the image is shown. And no one knows ostensibly what, what kind of image will be shown because it's randomly produced. Yeah. So that suggests to some that the body is somehow anticipating the future or knowing the future before anyone could know that it happens. It's like consciousness is reaching forward in time somehow. And it's happening at a very subtle level. We're having to measure these these subtle things that only you could really get in a lab and you have to use statistics. I've actually done one of these studies at the Institute of Noetic Sciences with mm -hmm. Dr. Dean Radin. Yeah. And he studies, this is known as presentiment, where the body is sensing something. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a subset of precognition. And you know there was a pupil dilation thing and pic different pictures are showing up and uh, the, the, your pupils are being measured before the picture comes up. So what does this mean about time? If the future can be known before we actually know the future. And this is one of the ideas that I talk about in my book and some other people talk about, which is the idea that consciousness not only creates matter and sort of precedes it, but exists beyond space and time. Bacon, your noodle. So with that said, we've got the, the skin test, but also the heart. Yes. And was this from heart math? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So the heart 
responds. So not just the skin. The heart responds before an image is shown. So what does that say about the heart and its role in consciousness potentially, or just in in our lives and our intuition? Um, like I said, pupils dilate. There are brain responses that happen before the image is shown. So there are different parts of the body that seem to be responding. And these studies have been done by many different scientists. And when you aggregate the data in a meta-analysis, it's called, you end up with a statistical effect that is small, but highly statistically significant. And this is what we see in many places. And to me, it actually makes sense that it would be small because if we were precognitive all the time, mm -hmm. then I would know the future 100% and be 100% accurate, yeah. but I'm not. So maybe there's a subtle sort of thing where I get an intuition and don't even realize it. Right. Um, there's an example I talk about in the book of looking at flight occupancy rates uh, before 9-11. Fewer people on flights that day than on a normal Significantly day. Significantly fewer. Significantly fewer. So is that an example of precognition where people subtly say, oh, well, I just don't feel like taking this flight today um, or who knows, but it could be at a subtle level. That is super fascinating stuff. And I've been following and, and looking at research from HeartMath Institute for many years. And that's where I first became aware of, and th this is, a, I believe it's a magnetoencephalograph that they use to measure the human heart and this kind of bioelectrical field that's produced that's actually larger than the brain. And so it's called a, a tube torus. And so this extends from the human body that they can see with this particular equipment, this kind of radiation that's coming from our bodies. Now we know that there's radiation coming off of us, but we can't see it. This is well known throughout science, but the degree that the heart is expanded out, potentially even eight feet from our bodies, and that area, that energy, that radiation is interacting with other people's radiation. And then we have this idea or faulty belief that we can't really feel other people like, you know, know other people, know, know something about them. You know, like it's just it just doesn't feel right being around this person or this person really makes me feel good. It feels good to be around this person. It's not just the chemical feeling. There's an interaction going on. And with that said, I want to talk about more of this interaction with humanity because it's so fascinating how we're all connected. And I think that this is one of the things that's really going to help to uplevel us as a species. And we're going to do that right after this quick break. So sit tight. We'll be right back. Don't sleep on sleep. Today, there is a big revolution happening to improve our sleep quality because we're understanding finally just how much our sleep quality impacts our physical performance, our brain function, and literally impacts our body composition. Sleep deprivation is something that can directly lead to increased fat gain and an inability to lose weight as well. With great sleep, we see an increased ability to burn fat. Like the research that was done by the International Association for the Study of Obesity that found that our sleep quality, namely a sleep-related hormone called melatonin that everybody's heard of, increases your body's production of something called brown adipose tissue. This is a type of fat that actually burns fat. And the reason that it's brown versus the white adipose tissue is brown adipose tissue has a lot more mitochondria. And these are the energy power plants in our cells, very metabolically active tissue that we build more of when we get great sleep. Now, the issue today is getting that great sleep. And there's tons of lifestyle factors, but there's also a nutrition component. And there's a study that was published in the journal Pharmacology, Biochemistry and Behavior that found that the renowned medicinal mushroom reishi was able to number one, significantly decrease sleep latency. This means you fall asleep faster when you have reishi. They also found that this increased overall sleep time for study participants. And they found that this increased the sleep efficiency by improving the non-REM deep sleep 
and improving our light REM sleep as well. This comprehensive approach to improving sleep, it's not pounding our sleep into submission, what we see with conventional drugs and things of that nature, where it's kind of like pseudo sleep. This is actually improving your sleep quality, your sleep efficiency by utilizing Rishi. Now, the only Rishi that I use is from Four Sigmatic because it's dual extracted, where they're doing an alcohol extract and a hot water extract. So they're actually extracting all of the nutrients from the mushroom that you think you're getting with Company X, all right? You're actually getting those compounds. With the hot water extract, you're getting the beta-glucan related compounds. And then with the alcohol extract, you're getting more of the hormonal compounds. And I think these are really important for sleep, like the terpenes and things in that category and so much more. So make sure to use foursigmatic.com forward slash model to get your hands on this and so much more. So that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash model. You get 15% off their Rishi Elixir and all of their medicinal mushroom elixirs, coffees, hot cocos, and so much more. I love Four Sigmatic. I literally have them every single day, one of their different products. Today I had my Lion's Mane coffee mix. So, so good. And it has all of these benefits as well. If you're still drinking standard coffee, what are you doing? You need to get these benefits from the Four Sigmatic coffee mixes. Now, head over and check them out ASAP because these are absolutely game-changing. The coffee mix, great for in the morning, Rishi, great for in the evening and winding down. And they've got all of this research to back it up. And this is what it's all about, is having more education so that we're executing on the things that really do work, that have a clinically proven benefit, and we can actually enjoy ourselves and have a good time along the way. And again, that's foursigmatic.com forward slash model for 15% off everything. And now back to the show. All right, we're back and we're talking with the author of An End to Upside Down Thinking, Mark Gober, and this is super fascinating stuff. And before the break, I mentioned we're gonna talk a little bit more about our connection as humans. And I wanna talk first, before we get to that, Stanford Research Institute, Project Mm. Stargate, all right? CIA studies on psychic activity, like the CIA. And when I started reading this stuff and looking at these documents that you have and going back and going to the site, I'm like, is this a TV movie? You know, this is like, I'm watching The Gifted, you know, this mutant show like X-Men or whatever. And I feel like like I'm in a movie now because it's like, how do people not know about this? This is, some of this stuff is actually based on real facts, you know? So let's talk a little bit about that and, and how you came across that information. So the Stanford Research Institute is where studies on a phenomenon called remote viewing were conducted, and they were conducted by the U.S. government basically for psychic spying. So remote viewing is the ability to perceive something at a distance. So that means I'm sitting here in San Francisco, and I'm able to see what's in a random location in Africa and draw what's there. There are certain people that are very talented at this and have worked with the U.S. government for national security purposes. And this is known that there was a program like this. There's been a debate about whether these things have been proven or not. But when you look at the data and the people that are behind it, I think it's pretty compelling. It's chapter four of my book, all about the evidence for remote viewing. Um, Jessica Utz, Dr. Jessica Utz, who is the 2016 uh, president of the American Statistics Association. She was asked by Congress and the CIA to look at this phenomenon of remote viewing and determine whether or not it's real using statistics and look at looking at the studies that have been done. And she says very explicitly, anyone can download her, her report. 
She says that using the standards um, that we use in any other area of science, psychic phenomena have been well established. And she basically says we should stop arguing over whether these things are real and just spend our time figuring out how they could be real and how we can use them. So that's one example. President Jimmy Carter, he confirmed that remote viewers were used to find a downed plane in Africa that they couldn't find. Uh, So there are many examples of this when you look into it. You have laser physicists at Stanford that were doing it. At Princeton University, they looked at this phenomenon. Again, I didn't even know this when I was there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Robert John, who was the former dean of engineering at Princeton, had a nearly 30-year lab called the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Lab, where he showed that remote viewing is real. There are documents that the CIA has released within the last few years that were from the period during which these studies were run. And they say very explicitly, remote viewing is a real phenomenon. Implications are revolutionary. And they show the the scientific council that looked at it. And I show these documents in my book of just taking what I downloaded from the CIA's website. I mean, even people that I've talked to who are familiar with these concepts. So yeah. for example, I, was, I just gave a talk in Italy at the Science and Non-Duality Conference. And I showed some of those uh, documents that, that you're referring to of the CIA basically saying remote viewing is real explicitly. And I saw people's faces. And these are people who have been studying this stuff for years. And some, some of the people in the room came up to me afterwards and said, how did you find those documents? I've never, I didn't realize there was that much evidence for it. So that's just one piece of evidence. To me, I look at that and like, how do I reconcile what's said there? Is it, did the CIA mess up? Um, is there some kind of conspiracy or are they talking about a real phenomenon? And when we see that Princeton was doing this and other, uh, other researchers have been doing this, Stephanie Schwartz has been using remote viewing, he's a researcher in this area, to find archeological sites in Egypt, for example, because remote viewing, believe it or not, can be done Uh, in the past, present, and future, meaning that people can perceive something not only at a physical distance, but also at a distance in time. So they can can see what was there in the past and what what will be there in the future. And sometimes this has been confirmed. And again, Dr. Jessica Utz talks about this precognitive remote viewing as being a real thing. Yeah, Jessica Utz was definitely a, a trigger point for me to really like, oh, wow, this is, we're looking at the statistics and for this to not be something that's actually confirmed. I mean, we're talking about billions and billions of percent, you know, probability that this is actually something that's real and people are doing. And it's very much minority report for me, you know, it's still like super weird and and, and freaky. At the same time, you know, I, I just want to point people back to our experience of reality right now, which is our 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 minds as human beings are very expansive. You know, even now as you're listening as folks are listening you can zoom out and take a meta perspective and see yourself sitting where or standing or working out or whatever you're doing right now you can see yourself and you can zoom out and and think about the household that you might live in and see your parents or your kids and what they're doing you know they're at daycare you can have all of these visions that are being created by this very expansive mind you can see into the future you can start to look at potential things happening you can see in the past and the stories and you can actually reframe them you can change those things and it does have a physical effect right when you start to do this stuff and with that said knowing that this can even go a step further to be something that's going on simultaneously people being able to see things from a distance i think it's super fascinating but it's just something again it it needs more research and with jessica utz kind of pointing to like we've got the statistical data that this is this is real let's put some more energy and intention into figuring out how it's working and 
if we can make sure that we're doing this for our benefit and not like taking down humanity with some kind of weird, you know, spy movie situation. Right, right. We can use it to enhance our own abilities to make the world better, to make our lives better. Um, but another point I should add here is that just like in sports, you have Michael Jordan, who's who's an amazing basketball player, and then you have an everyday person who can dribble a basketball. It seems to be similarly um, situated with psychic abilities like remote viewing, where people, there are some superstars that the government seems to have hired who can do these things that are crazy to me and you. Um, I've never remote viewed anything before, but apparently- I got a remote control. Right. You know what I'm saying? Change the station, drive a car, but yeah, remote viewing now. That's the closest I've gotten to. <laughs> so, but it seems like it's it's distributed in a, in a way that, you know, some people are really good. So it's hard for for the normal person who hasn't done these things before to conceptualize it. But if, if you know, the brain is like a filter of consciousness and some people are better able to unlock that filter, just like in anything else, they're more skilled, then it's conceivable at least that some people could have extraordinary abilities, whereas other people aren't quite as good at it. Yeah. And so folks listening, you know, I'm a very analytical person, very science minded. So if this bumps up against and makes you feel a little uncomfortable, like it did for me as well, uh, just do your own research, like have the audacity to s suspend disbelief and just just look into the data because it's really, really fascinating. And it's also a little bit troubling because, you know, we we have limits on our thinking of what's possible. Like we can make freaking like we can make Incredible Hulk, right? Something shows up on this screen based on all of these different things that are technologies that you can't even see. You know, this it would seem like magic if it was you know, uh, even a hundred years ago to our ancestors. But today we accept it as just, oh, this is normal. You know, we've got all of these different waves. Like we're surrounded right now. We're surrounded by all these different radio frequencies. We just need something, a receptor to pick it up. It's always there, always present. So again, just again, if this is something that might bump up against those beliefs, have the courage to just take a look into it because I think it's really fascinating. And so I wanna shift gears now and talk about mind to mind communication. Um, for me, uh, I saw, this was a while back, maybe about 10 years ago, but Princeton University study, they found that the human brain itself syncs up when other people are in communication and they just have a basic rapport. Our brain waves start to sync up and mm -hmm. it starts to make me think about this potential like hive mind or like how humans can kind of collaborate and be on the same page. And this is a phenomenon that's known, it's very well known, but this is taking it a little bit further so let's talk about that. Yeah, so relating this back to the physics we talked about earlier, Dr. Dean Radin has a theory, it's called, he has a book also called Entangled Minds. So it's using this idea of entanglement, quantum entanglement, which is proven and using, applying it to the mind, meaning that we're connected in some way. So when we think about phenomena like mind-to-mind -mind communication, some would call that telepathy, um, it might make sense in that context. So what are some of the studies done on that? I had never heard of these before I looked into it. There's a study called the Gonsfeld Experiment, and this has been replicated by dozens of experimenters over many decades. And Dean Radin, in his most recent book, Real Magic, he talks about categories of psychic or psi phenomena that are six sigma statistically, meaning that the odds that they're just happening by chance are more than a billion to one. And this is one of those phenomena. Remote viewing is another one, really good statistics. This telepathy experiment's another one. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is a, I mean, something that maybe all of us can relate to when we get to it. But let's just imagine that I'm sitting in a room in what's called a Gonsfeld state, where I'm given um, headphones playing relaxing music. I'm put into a super relaxed state, almost meditative. 
you're in another room and the experimenters give you a picture and they say, hey, Sean, I know this sounds crazy, but I want you to mentally send what you're looking at to Mark while he's in this relaxed state in the other room. So you're sitting there, quote unquote, sending this image to me mentally, telepathically. And then I come out of my relaxed state and I'm given four pictures to choose from. And you'd expect if there were no effect at all that I would guess or whoever's in my seat would guess correctly one out of four times, right. 25%. Right. What's found over many, many studies is that it's closer to 32%. Mm. So when you run That's the statistics huge. on this, it's a massively statistically significant effect. And because it's been done so many times, there's something going on. But when I think about it, it makes sense because I'm not 100% telepathic. And these are normal people who do these studies. Mm -hmm. These are not people who the government's testing who are superstar Michael Jordan psychics. These are everyday people. It makes sense because sometimes, let's say I think of somebody and then they call. You referenced that earlier. Mm -hmm. But it's a subtle thing. So it's like with the 32 versus 25%, it's like a little bit of information is getting through sometimes. And that conforms with my everyday experience of I'm not 100% telepathic. But sometimes I have these instances where it's like, you know, was that random or did I know something before it happened? Nuts. Nuts. I'm thinking about when I was leaving the studio the other day, um, the, the piano player for the band Journey walked in and uh, he was there to, to do, to record something. Um, and I was just like, oh, that's really interesting. Of course, that song, you know, don't stop believing. <laughs> and uh, I was like, oh, that's pretty dope. You know, it's a super classic, you know, just that, that, that vibe. And uh, so we left there and we went to play miniature golf. It was on my birthday. And, you know, they're playing all this random stuff. And then that song comes on. Right, and it's just like the probability of them playing this song, of all the different songs in the universe, you know, in the world, just kind of freaked me out. And then, again, where did it happen the next time? I went to a speaking event. I spoke at an event the following day. I walk in, that song is playing at that exact <laughs> moment. When I'm just coming in the back, like I'm not, they're not playing it for me to come on stage, I walk in the building. And I'm just like, what are the odds, right? What are the odds? It's like something put me in this space for those synchronistic events to take place, right? And so all of these little interesting things take place, but also us being connected as humans. And for us to be aware of this, that who are the people that you are allowing to have impressions upon you? Because that could potentially have an impact on your life. And what is the energy and the the perceptions that you're putting out to the world because you are affecting the people the people around mm -hmm. you as well. So um, this is super fascinating stuff. There's so much that I want to talk with you about, but I, I want to wrap things up a little bit here and just encourage people to check out your book. So your book, you, you titled it An End to Upside Down Thinking. Why'd you give it that title? It relates to this idea of materialism, which starts with physical matter and says that consciousness through a brain comes out the other side. And what I'm arguing is that that's upside down, that consciousness is first. And you'll see in the preface of my book, I have triangles that start. These are from Dean Radin, actually, so I've adapted from his design, where matter's on the bottom, and at the top of the triangle, you get consciousness. What I'm saying is that consciousness is on the bottom. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Very, very powerful stuff. So if you could, can you let everybody know where they can connect with you online and where they can find your book? My book is available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and where books are sold. Awesome. And so if you're getting this when this episode first comes out, it might be on pre-order, but get it. It's going to be hot. This is a paradigm shifting 
uh, life-changing book that is really, really written very well. And it speaks to the science mind and all of us. So we can start to make a little bit of sense of this. And so uh, just thank you so much for, for all the awesome work you put into the book. And final question I got for you. What is the model that you're here to set for other people with the way you live your life personally? It's a great question. So I'm really not trying to tell people how to think or how to live their lives, but I'm trying to take a very honest approach to data and to look at things objectively because our, like I learned in, in behavioral economics in college, that our, we can have biases that, that steer us in a certain direction if we're not careful. So I like, I like to look at things very objectively. I would say from the scientific lens, that's one way I'm looking at things that people might resonate with. Another is kind of a totally new worldview for me, which is this notion that consciousness is the basis of all reality beyond space and time. And furthermore, that it's entangled so that we're part of the same consciousness and actually connected on a more fundamental level. So I think I always used to treat people well. That was an important part of my life. But this is suggesting that at the core level, we're connected and really the same. So I think that has a, that has had a change on an effect on how I look at other people and just the world around me. Awesome, yeah, you do have this energy that you're giving off of, you know, you, you care, you're a good person. And th just thank you so much for being you and for stepping into the discomfort and writing this book. Mark, you're, you're awesome, man, thank you. Thanks, Sean, appreciate it. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the show today. I hope you got a lot of value out of this. Again, have the audacity to ask questions, I right? Question everything. Questions are really one of the big governors or directives for our minds, right? Our minds are really operating on the questions that we ask constantly. This is going on all the time and you can ask questions that empower you or you can ask questions that disempower you, you know? Why is this happening to me? Um, why don't they like me? You know, what what's going on with this, uh, with my weight and my health? Why is this not working? Instead of asking, you know, what is it that I need to learn from this situation? How is this here in my life to help me to grow? And then digging into the deeper questions, you know, why am I here? You know, and kind of getting into the nature of, of reality and the meaning of life. These are all interesting questions to ask and, and scholars have been pondering this for, you know, for centuries. But uh, we're still all trying to figure this out. And we're, the good news is that we're in this together and we get to help and lift each other up. And I'm very excited about that. So, uh, you know, from my experience and the song that was following me at the miniature golf and at the speaking event, don't stop believing, all right? Ultimately, that's what it's all about, all right? So we've got some incredible guests and incredible episodes coming up for you. So be ready, all right? Take care, have an amazing day, and I'll talk with you soon. And for more after the show, make sure to head over to themodelhealthshow.com. That's where you can find all of the show notes. You can find transcriptions, videos for each episode. And if you got a comment, you can leave me a comment there as well. And please make sure to head over to iTunes and leave us a rating to let everybody know that the show is awesome. And I appreciate that so much. And take care. I promise to keep giving you more powerful, empowering, great content to help you transform your life. Thanks for tuning in.